Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we cover a new development in last week's story about the USCCB not voting on sexual abuse resolutions and a field hospital that's been set up in St. Peter's Square. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Hello, Jerry. Good morning. Good morning, Colleen. So last week, as we talked about on the show, Cardinal DiNardo stood up. He's the head of the USCCB. He stood up at the U.S. bishop's annual meeting and made this surprise announcement that the Vatican had asked the bishops not to vote on any resolutions about sexual abuse protocols, that they wanted to wait until the Vatican's meeting in February with the international bishops to make any final decisions on this. But the bishops decided to continue discussing plans like this uh, or about this. So on Tuesday and Wednesday after that announcement, a new plan came forward that hadn't really been on the table before. And under this plan, there would be this third party review board that was mostly constituted of lay people. And the abuse allegations, any abuse allegations would go to that lay board. So it would get lay people involved right from the start. It would report the abuse to civil authorities and then report them to the Metropolitan, who is a bishop who oversees a region. And there's been some controversy this morning because this plan was set forward by Cardinal Supich of Chicago, who is a Pope Francis appointee. And basically, some people are trying to say that Cardinal Supich worked on this plan with Cardinal Whirl, who was the former Archbishop of Washington, D.C. So both Supich and a spokesperson for Whirl denied this allegation this morning. They're saying they never worked together on it. And it seems like the the controversy that some people are trying to stir up here is simply to associate Cardinal Supich with Cardinal Whirl and kind of embarrass him that way. Jerry, has this story made any waves in Rome? Have you heard anything about this? It ha- it hasn't. I I've read some of the American reports, but it's it's not taken so seriously and it hasn't been reported in the Spanish, the Italian press. People see this kind of attack on Cardinal Supic as being much in line with the strategy that Archbishop Vigano adopted in his famous 11-page letter when he accused more than three dozen people in the Vatican of covering up on the three pontificates, but then really went and attacked Pope Francis. So, Jerry, the commonality that you seem to be pointing out here is just this parallel between people kind of using, as we've talked about on previous episodes of Inside the Vatican, using the sexual abuse crisis and you know, the sort of blows to credibility that that has created to, you know, leverage them against Pope Francis because of the rest of his agenda, right? Yeah, but also attacking people appointed by Pope Francis. Right, right. On the earlier draft, not the final draft, but the earlier ones, Rome had already communicated to the leadership of the conference that they saw some major problems with the proposal as it was emerging, and they asked then not to vote on the proposals. So the information I have at this side would seem to suggest that it may not have been a total surprise to the conference. Also, it's very clear that Rome got a few days only to examine the final draft. As I understand it, it was becoming clear that the proposals 
as they had might not have got through anyway. And so it seems that Cardinal Supic and other bishops came forward with this plan, that he had the idea, I think, and he shared it with others and got an input from others. So I really question the intent of trying to put in a bad light not just the Vatican and Pope Francis, but also the Pope's appointments in the United States by pulling out these stories where it's on very dubious evidence. Well, I don't see the evidence. Right. One of the angles that people have been trying to pull out of this story, especially detractors of Pope Francis appointees, they, they were saying that Supic discussed this plan with Archbishop Cordiglione of San Francisco and Archbishop Chapu of Philadelphia. And these men are on a wide range of different political positions. But, you know, they're saying that this was a ploy by by these bishops who are metropolitans, who are heads of different regions, to sort of take power away from the USCCB because this plan would give the metropolitans more authority. And I... You know, that just seems beyond the unnamed sources. It seems like something to be really skeptical of just because, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense for for these very politically diverse bishops to try to, you know, team up and, and snatch power from the USCCB. This, what would this accomplish? It does, just doesn't make sense. Well, the, the, this is indeed a strange thesis. I wonder what the rationale for such an allegation is. Is it to downplay the metropolitans, and most of them are not Francis appointments? Is it to just give the impression that the whole thing is out of control? Jerry, I actually wanted to ask you about some of that context that you've gotten in these last 30 years that you've been reporting on this. Was this kind of conspiracy mongering, is this something that happened during the JP2 and Benedict papacies, or is this a new thing under Francis? Every pope has had to endure resistance, but the question is the kind of resistance. And what distinguishes this kind? Benedict encountered quite a bit of resistance. Uh, John Paul II, much, much less. There was groups who were against him. But nobody has descended in those years, in those more than 30 years, to the levels that we are seeing today. When, when I see some of the blog sites and some of the things that are said in it, I, I just can't believe my eyes. Colleen, I've covered the synods here. And I saw in the synods on the family and the more recent synods, the most unbelievable charges being made, that the Pope was manipulating the synod, that the final document was already drafted before the the uh, drafting team even met. Uh, there are a lots of such suggestions, allegations, that really I'm not sure where all this is leading. Is, is this how the church should be functioning? Well, I think we, I think we know the answer to that. It, it, it's no, obviously, this is, this is so counter to what the Catholic Church should be about and what should we should be focusing on right now, which is, you know, trying to, to clean out our own house and and make you know some real progress on the sexual abuse issue, so that this like horror stops happening in our in our church, and just you know all of these 
political controversies and and these kind of proxy fights using the sexual abuse crisis as sort of ammo to fight different political fights. It's just, it's so not what we should be about. Well, I think, uh, as I said, I see this controversy now that has emerged somewhat along the same lines as the Vigano document. Yeah. And earlier documents. The reality is some of these people do not agree with the Pope and the way he's leading the church. Everybody recognizes, and there's nobody here in Rome who doesn't recognize, that people are very angry, that people feel betrayed by the sexual abuse of of children, vulnerable adults, by priests and by bishops and even by a cardinal. Yeah, of course. To think that the Pope or people in the Vatican are insensitive to this is really to uh, give a very false reading of the reality. And Pope Francis is determined, and the, the meeting in February is a sign of it, the appointment of Charles Chicluna, the Archbishop of Malta, bringing him back and giving him a key position, are all indications of the Pope's determination to clean house. Up next, in honor of the World Day of the Poor, which was Sunday, November 18th, the Vatican has put up a sort of temporary field hospital in St. Peter's Square. Pope Francis uh, went to visit the field hospital this weekend, which is uh, kind of a big tent. It's offering regular physicals and also specialists for poor people who can't afford doctors to go to see. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that's been like for you to pass through, you know, St. Peter's and and see that day to day. Well, first of all, it brings the, the question of poverty under the spotlight. It puts it under the spotlight. It's a, a lot of places people like to keep the poor at a distance so you don't see them. Francis is making the what were invisible people visible. He's saying this is the reality. And right under where every Sunday he speaks at the Angelus and gives his blessing, right under he had installed very early on in his pontificate showers uh, for the poor people where they can go and get washed and cleaned and also barbers, hairdressing services. And I've seen many in the Vatican haven't liked this. Hmm. They feel this is somehow downgrading the church. But Francis is saying this is witnessing to the gospel of Christ. If you walk around St. Peter's Square at night, walk on the outside of the the Vatican City State, you see so many people sleeping and they get food provided by, led by the Pope's almoner, this cardinal from Poland. And it is sending a message across the city. And now many, many parishes, religious orders, etc., are responding as well and doing likewise in their zones. This is contagious, this kind of message the Pope is transmitting. You mentioned that a few churches in in Rome had uh, sort of copied this, right? I, I will give you an example. Right near me, there is near the Pantheon, there's a church of San Eustachio. The priest, Don Giulio, he's an elderly priest, had now for a couple of years, inspired by Pope Francis, begun feeding 150 people every day. Students from the school, seminarians come and help him. 
now under the church, the very ancient church, he has opened a whole complex uh, where there are people can, the poor people can get showers, they can get a bite to eat, they can uh, get a sit and uh, get some instruction. And I think this is very inspiring because it's bringing people in, showing people that you live the gospel. On Sunday, Pope Francis also had mass with some 6,000 poor people and then had lunch with 1,500 people in St. Peter's Square. In his homily at that Mass, Pope Francis said that giving to the poor is not just a fad under this pontificate. It's what Christians are called to do. Inside the Vatican is produced by me, Colleen Dully, and edited by Oliver Lazarus. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Production assistance this week from Eloise Blondio. Our audio engineer is Karen Freeman. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media, I'm Colleen Dully with Gerard O'Connell. See you next week. <laughs>